0: And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. Factset delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey everybody, welcome again to The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsog with the CFA Institute. And today we have Timothy Barik, Doctor of Economics and currently researcher at the University of Lund in Sweden. Hey Timothy. Hello, Matt. Good to talk to you. Today we're gonna to talk about degrowth. I know that's probably a new term for a lot of folks. I just kind of came across this about a year or so ago and has been researching it since. But Tim is one of the global experts in the topic, so I thought it would be good to have him on the podcast to, to educate our members uh, and investors on it. So without further ado, Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here.
1: Well, how oh I got here, that's, that's a rather long story, but I, I could start telling you that I started university just studying economics Uh, not caring much about the environment, not knowing anything about climate change. And that was back in 2007. So that was already a thing. Studied uh, what we would now call mainstream economics for about three years. Then -hmm. I went to Sweden and I discovered climate change, the environmental crisis, the ecological collapse. We'll see what's the best way of calling it. And uh, so I came back and I thought, oh, that's what I want to study. So I studied environmental economics found that disappointing. So I moved back to Sweden to study ecological economics. So ecological economics is a school of thought within economics as a science uh, that exists since the 1980s. And what these people, ecological economists, have tried to do is to conceptualize how an economy interacts with nature. Mm. So I've studied that during my master's. And of course, when you study ecological economics, it means you have to rethink how an economy functions always asking yourself about flows of energy and matter.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I've studied economic growth with a new pair of glasses. Right. And so when you study a macroeconomy as a metabolism that just eats energy and materials and reject that same energy and these same materials back into nature, right. well, you see economic growth in a different light. And I yeah, thought yeah. that was fascinating and no one was really talking about economic growth that way. So I decided to write a PhD on that. Finished that two years ago, and now I just joined Lund University, where I'm just uh, researching that topic of degrowth again, but getting more specific.
0: All right, great. Now is, now is the part of the podcast that I'm most scared of because uh, you get to quiz me on you know what are some facts or figures around degrowth to help frame the <laughs> conversation. Help frame the conversation for everyone. You know, I'm v- fairly new to this, but I've read a lot, so let's see how smart I am or or am not about growth and what you wanna talk about. So fire away, we'll see how I do.
1: Okay. Okay, I'm gonna start with a double question about okay. fairly recent numbers about global inequality and about environmental inequalities. So my question to you, Matt, will be that one. All right. How much of the world wealth does the top 10% richest individuals own? And second part of the question, how much do these top 10% richest individuals pollute? Meaning, what is their relative share of global emissions? And let's say in 2021.
0: What's their footprint? This is the second part of the question, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. If you take like... In percentage the terms. Entire in percentage terms.
0: Okay. All right. So the first part of the question is, how much of the global wealth does the top 10% have? i must say... Can I give you a range or is that cheating? Yeah, yeah,
1: sure. No, it, de- it depends. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it'll, be a, it'll be a small range. It's not, it's not going to be 1 to 100. Uh, I'm going to say 75 to 80%. Wow,
1: that's actually 76 Okay, good. So you're pretty on point.
0: Well done. All right, and then their footprint. Mm, I have a feeling that should be higher. I'm going to say 85%.
1: Well, that's actually only 50%. Oh, really? Oh. So the 10% I was too pe- richest I was too individual. Pes-
0: I was too pessimistic.
1: <laughs> I, w- I, w- I would freak out if I see that number in a couple of years that the 10% richest individual cause 85% of global emissions. I mean, picture this, the so 10% richest individuals, we're talking about alpha billion people. Yeah, yeah. So that's, and if if you look into these numbers, so you enter the top 10% category, if you earn more than about 7,000 euros per month, I don't know how much that is in American dollars, but.
0: Right. Yeah, I don't know the conversion rate. It's a little bit, I would say eight to nine is my guess, but I'd have to check. Okay. I'll I'll have a very, uh, I can go back and check and have a very clumsy edit into the. uh, into the podcast of me saying the exact number, but no, my guess is it's not, it's not far from there. Yeah, yeah, But seven. I gave you an 7, A plus, seven thousand euros on, on inequality. Okay,
1: A plus for inequality, and, and then let's say a, 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 C. a, a C, C minus <laughs> for, for environmental inequality. But that's okay because these numbers are just very new. Like these, the carbon inequality database yeah. has been put together by uh, researchers like <laughs> Lucas Chancel. People close to Thomas Piketty in this World Inequality Lab has just you know, been released in 2021 for the first time in this okay. year's report, World Inequality okay. 2022 report. So that's pretty fresh.
0: Okay. Is that, it? Is that the whole test or, or is there more? I can do more.
1: Oh, you, you want more? Okay. If you've got so more. The, the, I, I can come up with more. I, I like this one. It's a bit nerdy, okay? So <laughs> the concept right. of degrowth, came out in France in 2002, was translated in English in 2008. So starting 2008, people at university academics have started to write peer-reviewed articles about degrowth. So now my question to you is, how many scientific articles do you think there are about degrowth today?
0: From 2008 or just in in the whole... whole Well, the
1: first one was in 2007. So.
0: How many academic articles on degrowth are there?
1: Yeah, that's the that's tough one because it's difficult for people to envision how many academic articles are out there.
0: Yeah. No, that's a good question. I would say 5,000. <laughs> or, or, or is that too optimistic?
1: Wow. That, I, would, I would love it. You know, <laughs> degrowth had like... 5,000 academic articles. So the actual number is 550. So uh, they are roughly
0: I, about. I should have taken a zero off. Okay, 550. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, but I thought, I thought it would be at least. Already
1: a, a lot.
0: I, I would have thought it would have been over 1,000, just because you give me the 2002, 2008, I would have thought at least over 1,000. And then I went higher because I've been seeing a lot more of it recently. So I mm. assume that it was a hockey stick going up.
1: Well, it's accelerating, but it's not starting from much. So 2007, you get like three articles. 2008, it's like two, three, four, then you get like 15, 20. And even now, so 2022 is going to be the the record, I think around 100 articles published Mm -hmm. in a year. So it it goes rather slowly, but it's just never been as popular in the history of the concept as it is now.
0: Well, that's a great transition into telling us I'm going to stop doing the exam because I'm starting to fail. <laughs> but that's a great transition into where have we been? Where are we now? And where are we going in degrowth? And in that answer, probably, you know, start talking a about what is degrowth and what is not degrowth? And we can get into that in more detail. Yeah. So degrowth
1: is to start with the most minimal definition is a reduction of production and consumption. Mm -hmm. So this far, it's just all good. We know economic growth, which was measured with growth domestic product. It's an estimation of how much an economy produce and how that level of production is changing from one year to another. Right. So we used to economies that are growing, meaning we produce more next year <laughs> than we did last year. Right. So degrowth in the most minimal understanding would be go the opposite of that. So from this year to the next, we would just produce less. And where does that come from? And now in, in telling you where that comes from, I'm going to build up that definition so we can make the difference between degrowth and, for example, recession. Okay.
0: Yeah. So it yeah, comes from. Just, 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 just to interrupt. Just for a second. I think that's yeah. a great, that's a great, that's a great point because when I first came to this, I think when a lot of first people first come to, they see that word, they're like, oh, that word says, hey, let's have a depression. <laughs> that was my first. And I said I said, okay, I need to investigate this more. And I did, and I learned more about it. But I think that's the challenge that people come to, a lot of people come to is like that word, I think can be a little intimidating to folks. Yeah, and, so, and I just wanted to point that out. And I think that's a good, good place to start from. So I'm sorry for interruption, but go ahead.
1: It all started in the 1970s. So this year, we've been celebrating the 50 years of the Meadows Report. So mm-hmm. uh, the Meadows Report, the Limits to Growth, is a book that was published in 1972. That's right. And that book gave birth to what we refer now as uh, an objection to growth. So back then, these scientists, they saw rising curves of production and demography being linked to rising curves of using natural resources and emitting pollutions. Yeah. And so they worried. And they thought, well, if that rate of production is infinite, it's going to push on finite resources, and at some point, it's going to hit a wall. Right. So back then, it was only a worry, objection to growth. Forward at the beginning of the 2000s, where these planetary boundaries have been just um, crossed in many countries, especially rich countries. And so in France, the concept of décroissance was born. People that have been criticizing economic growth in the spirit of the objection to growth of the 1970s, but realizing that now it was just not enough to worry about some hypothetical future where somehow we would cross natural boundaries. It's like we've crossed them. And now we need to actually put our economy on a diet. Right. But so the first thing, and that's maybe the first difference between a recession or depression and degrowth is that degrowth as an intention. So you reduce production in order to lighten your footprint. Right. So it's the realization that as an ecological economist, if you show me an economy and I'm measuring... Your material footprint, your water footprint, your carbon footprint, and all the many different ways you can measure the biophysical metabolism of an economy. And then you compare this to what we call biocapacity, which is basically the ability of your surrounding ecosystems to just uh, supply your economy with energy materials. Mm-hmm. And if somehow you're over-consuming, you find yourself in a state of ecological deficit and if you're in an ecological deficit at some point sooner or later there's going to be a problem for a little while you can steep you can make your economy function if you manage to import energy and materials from other countries and if you manage to export these pollutions and waste to other countries too which many risk countries have been doing for decades so that's the idea of degrowth the first thing is okay so we will reduce production and consumption in order somehow uh, to downscale the full metabolism of our economy to a scale, to a size that can be sustainable over the very long term. So that's how it connects to a concept like sustainable development. We cannot have sustainable development in a a bloated economy that has transgressed its biocapacity. So I like to, to see it as a biophysical diet for ecologically obese economies. Um, that's the first feature. But those people at the beginning of the 2000s, they've realized, and that was uh, you know, part of ideas that people have been calling post-development and also political ecology. They've realized that it was not only a technical problem because pr- what we produce and what we consume is not just something purely functional. It is linked also to our identity, to our politics, to our Mm -hmm. history, to all of that. So these people have realized somehow that it was just not enough to imagine this kind of biophysical diet, but also that to reinvent an economy that could function without growth. So Tim Jackson, a British economist, publishes in 2009, Prosperity Without Growth. Peter Victor, Canadian macroeconomist publishes the year before managing without growth. So now, all these ideas, we often bundle them in the concept of post growth. So, post growth as this kind of long term goal of building an economy that can function. So, an economy that can innovate, that can create jobs, that can redistribute wealth, that can have quality public services, all of that, that can invest in new businesses, but that does not require economic growth. And at this point, perhaps you'll, and, and I, I can stop if, if you have several steps in and, and, and between, but most of the people will tell you, yes, but perhaps we can green growth.
0: Yes. Yes. That, that's, and that's one of the questions I have that, that I've come across is, well, hey, that's, that's nice, but hey, can't we just do green growth? Can't you just substitute green energy sources for you know, dirty energy sources have green growth instead of brown growth, and hey, everybody wins. Everything's great. But that's not the case, as, 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 you, as you're going to tell us.
1: Well, unfortunately, <laughs> it is not. I, I will still defend after that, that even if we had green growth, the greenest of growth, in an infinite environment, there will still be good reasons to criticize the endless pursuit of economic growth. We'll come back to that. But now let's focus a bit on green growth. And for people that might not know the term, it emerged in the 1990s when economists started to study the link between growth, domestic product and environmental resources. And these people, they've noticed like little inverted, like U's, like bell curves. So when the country develops at the beginning, you know, you build a lot of stuff, roads, buildings, you develop an industry. And in doing that, you're using a lot of energy and materials and you're emitting a lot of greenhouse gases, for example. So you have this coupling. But once you reach a certain point, you start investing in green technologies. You start growing an environmental awareness after a certain level of Mm -hmm. GDP per habitants. And so you decouple. So that's the the concept of decoupling uh, that you will see in in most environmental policy in in countries nowadays. So we're trying to decouple, meaning we're trying to de-link economic growth from environmental pressures, both the use of natural resources at the extraction side and the emission of pollution at the excretion uh, side. In theory, it sounds good. And I'm like, okay, cool. The problem is that, well, 30 years of numbers, and especially the last 20 years of us trying, when I say us, it means of the European Union, for example, just having decoupling and green growth as its main policy. Right. The uh, sustainable development goals. Number eight, one of the target is about decoupling. So after green growth and decoupling was really the main motto of environmental policy. So now we've got three or at least two decades of, of failure standing in our face. And when you look at numbers, uh, there are very, very, very few countries, and I mean around between 10 and 15, that have managed to have economic growth and to reduce carbon emissions. So first, the problem with these these front runners that the media always point to as kind of examples that green growth is possible. For me as an ecological economist, if you show me your economy does not emit any carbon, I'm like, cool, you've done one out of the nine planetary boundaries. What about your water footprint? What about your biodiversity footprint? What about your material footprint? So numbers about material footprint, which is an important indicator because it predetermined 90% of all environmental impact. So the way we use biomass materials, minerals, that predetermines, of course, the water we pollute, the species we threatened, the soil we change. And this has been no decoupling at all. Actually, it's been a recoupling in high-income countries since the beginning of the 2000s, which right. kind of makes sense because when you want to extract, let's say, metals, low-hanging fruit. You're going to just take the one that are easiest and cheapest to extract, right? Right. Then once you've done this, you need to just dig deeper. They're less concentrated. And so you waste more and more energy and materials to obtain materials. And so the more your economy grows, well, the more its kind of material footprint increases at, at a constant production. So imagine if you want to produce more. So that's where we are now, just material footprint, for example, is absolutely not decoupled. And the cases of decoupling we've seen for carbon are very disappointing. So why is that? First, because they're extremely tiny. So the IPCC has released its report this year, told us basically the kind of reduction we should be expecting in high-income countries. It's different for different countries, but in a country like France and most high-income countries, we're talking double digits. So we're talking in between 10, 15% reduction per year. Mm -hmm. When we've looked at what the best countries in the world have done in the best conditions possible, that's one, two, 3%. So somehow, if you want to show me that decoupling is a viable strategy for climate mitigation, then you have to show me how you're going to manage to bring these rates up To 15% in the coming seven years. So you don't have the Joker card of like technological progress and all of that, because we're talking by 2030. So these numbers, I mean, the, the reduction are very small. The way I usually summarize it, I like to say that, yeah, we can say that somehow we've greened, we've decarbonized these economies in the same way that you could say you've climbed Mount Everest if you've, you know you've walked on like two steps at the bottom of it. It's not false, you know, you've you've somehow walked in the direction of the summit, but it's right. a bit disingenuous.
0: Yeah. So d- to summarize in the way i've heard it argued uh, and and that was a that was a great great summary. But you can't trade green growth for the growth we have now because you're say you solve for climate. Great. But there's still Eight other planetary boundaries you have to concern yourself with. Where are you going to get the lithium? Where are you going to get the cobalt, and so on for all of these green projects? What happens to the wind turbines when they're when they're done? What happens to the solar panels when 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 they're done? Uh, you haven't addressed a lot of agricultural issues. You haven't addressed the nitrogen and phosphorus, you know, issues of of those planetary boundaries, and so on. Climate gets the most headlines but it's an ecological you know it's it's the biosphere we all live there except for folks maybe up on the international space station but they'll eventually <laughs> they'll eventually come back so every climate is just one part of that equation and the the issue is in in the degrowth uh, way of looking at things is growth is the problem growth for growth's sake that it could be dirty pollution it could be green Use of overuse of minerals, overuse of other materials that the planet can't sustain. Is that a a decent summary?
1: That's a decent summary. And just one point I want to stress is that when we're talking about economic growth, we're talking about the additional stuff you're going to produce from one year to, to the other. Right. So, but if you want, for example, to reach carbon neutrality, you need to decarbonize not only the new stuff you produce, let's say all the cars you produce this year, but you also need to get all the old polluting cars out of your economy. Mm-hmm. So that's here that the task become really complicated with the deadline as short as seven years. When you need to just get rid of all these uh, zombie technologies, as people call them, uh, coal fire plants, um, oil heaters, old cars, uh, well, it's not only enough to invent a new solar panel or just a perfect electric car, even though there is no such thing because material footprint, water footprint, all the stuff we talked about. But right. if you even if you were to do it, you would need to have this new innovation replace. So we talk about a process of exnovation to exnovate old zombie technologies. And that takes time. Yeah. So the degrowth argument, I guess, is to say we don't have to choose. We can add this step, which the IPCC call the sufficiency step, the demand side option. Let's say we reduce demand as much as we can. So somehow, if we manage to reduce the number of cars we use and use more cycling, public transport, all of that, let's say we manage to shrink the number of cars we need by 50%. Well, that's great. That's already something. And then we focus eco-innovation and make sure that that remaining 50% we use are the best, most sustainable car technology can afford. So degrowth in that sense is adding an extra step to the usual eco-efficiency approach uh, through uh, technological innovation. But it's adding it first. It's not in parallel. The most sustainable resource is the one you don't have to use. So somehow giving you very small examples about just flying. So flying is one of the most carbon intensive thing you can do as a, legally as an individual. And somehow right now, technology-wise we're stalling in terms of just inventing a carbon-free alternative to the fossil plane. We don't have electric planes. We don't have mm-hmm. hydrogen planes. So we have to acknowledge the fact that all flights in coming 10 years within our IPCT deadline are going to be emitting carbon. So here for that specific issue, then you need to put yourself in avoid mode. This is not an improve mode. This is rather, how can we avoid as many flights as possible? So instead of me flying to you to record the podcast, we're doing it, you know. I'm sitting in Sweden, you're sitting in the US, and we're just recording the podcast. We have avoided one potential flight. That is one potential flight. We won't have to worry about geoengineering back the carbon into the earth, about the engine of the plane, about everything else. Just one problem that is just out of our system, which is good. So, degrowth, you could see as just trying to get as many problems out of the system so that that smaller economy is actually easier to green.
0: Right. Well, that's what I want to kind of pivot to next is we've talked a little about what degrowth is, what it isn't, how green growth isn't the answer. What does a degrowth economy look like? And you, we've talked a little bit about you know, the, the example of air travel, avoidance of things, how degrowth is kind of, has to be the first part, it's not, it's not an added on to something. It's the first, it's where you start. But what does that look like? If we're talking five years from now, 10 years from now, and we're a more green in a in a more degrowth world, what does that look like? How do how do we get how do we get there?
1: Okay. Be, be, before describing the economy concretely, I need to give you a bit of a heads up on degrowth as a concept. Sure. Because remember I was telling you that even if there was just no climate, no resource issue, there would still be reasons to criticize economic growth. And historically, so when the concept emerged at the beginning of the 2000s, it was a critique of capitalism, a Mm. critique of a specific vision of development, a critique of globalization, a critique of productivism in general, a critique of consumerism. So let's say that under the umbrella of degrowth, you you had a lot of different critiques that came together. So now we're we're talking about and people talk about a degrowth society or a degrowth economy. It's not only just the very factual. Well, that's just an economy that produces and consumes less. It's actually just describing an alternative economic model where businesses organize differently, where we think differently as consumers, uh, where regionally and nationally, we coordinate economic production differently. So now I can describe and give you a few of the features of of that. And the way I like to do it is to come down to what I call the three engines of growth. Because when you look at an economy and Economic growth is not that kind of natural phenomenon that just happens because of human nature. It Mm -hmm. requires a lot of institutions at many different levels. So there are at least three levels. The consumption level, if you want economic growth, you need people to buy more every year. If people don't buy more, well, (laughs) businesses cannot sell more, and so they stop to produce more, and you don't have growth. So consumerism, as a specific... Uh, let's say, culture of consumption and perhaps linked to specific institutions like advertisement and planned obsolescence or devices that exist today to somehow maximize consumption. So in a growth economy, that makes sense. You have ads and planned obsolescence to make sure that, you know, I, I buy a new phone every two years instead of buying one every four years because we think that's good. But in a degrowth economy, or rather in a steady state economy, so remember degrowth is the diet to bring our economy back to a steady state level that is sustainable. So in that kind of steady state economy where you don't want to cross natural boundaries,
0: right.
1: you cannot afford to have advertisement and planned obsolescence that just, you know, incite new purchases every year. So these institutions have to be deconstructed. If I were to use economic jargon, I would say that consumption must shift from uh, looking at you know, use values in, in Marxist economics. So meaning like people would just buy stuff they need, but since these needs are finite, if you think about your need for health, your right. need for mobility, you need you know, a bike if you want to go from A to B, let's say, you don't need an increase. And the production of bike like that exponentially rises every year. Right. So somehow if we start from this hypothesis that our needs are finite, and if we just, let's take this very revolutionary utopian assumption that we organize consumption so that it is needs satisfying, then we reach that philosophy of voluntary simplicity, sufficiency. So that's that new culture of consumption will be an important feature of a post-growth uh, economy. So I gave you one about consumption. I do quickly the, the two others. In the same way that we have consumerism, so we need to buy more and more, we have productivism. So to buy more and more, we need businesses to produce more and more from one year to the other. How do we do this? Well, we organize production in the form of for-profit, private businesses. And we throw these businesses in competition in a more or less open market so that their performance is decided based on how much profit they make. So you invest in companies that make a lot of profit, companies that make a lot of profit or companies that grow and sell more. And so our entire game right now, the growth economy is based on on that that productivist institution that is the for-profit company. But imagine, so that's the kind of thought experiment I was doing in my PhD thesis. Imagine what would happen in France if you take the 4.5 million companies we have in France and you turn them all into not-for-profit cooperatives. So they keep doing the same thing. They just produce goods and services. They hire workers, they invest in new stuff, they innovate. But the only difference is no one can get wealthy. Individually, no one can appropriate the profit of this company. And so therefore, if you make a profit because you're a successful company, well, that profit gets reinvested in your activity or in the case of a mission-oriented business, you know, it's associated to a foundation and somehow that profit is being used to improve the goal of your company. So in that post-growth economy with not-for-profit cooperatives, you would get rid of another growth imperative. So if we pair it together, so producers that actually focus on the quality, on the durability of their product, working in interaction with consumers that focus on their needs and not just on the active buying. Then we get ourselves a nice little positive feedback loop uh, of, of a, a, a virtuous circle leading us to an economy that is, and that's what I love most about that, because I'm a bit of an economics nerd, of course. That, then you get an economy that does what it's supposed to do. I mean, an economy is here to economize resources. We organize economically so that we can do things. We cannot do alone. And most importantly, we can do them with parsimony. So we can do them by minimizing the amount of hours we have to work and uh, the the land we have to dedicate, the, the energy, the materials, all of that. So in that economy, actually, all gains of productivity, if we're more efficient in producing something, that's great. Then it means we can work less, it means certain forests won't, won't have to be cut down, it means we can have more national parks, we can protect more species. So it's an eco- economy that is wired to actually become more efficient. But that at the difference of capitalism today. Every liberated resource, let it be an hour of work uh, or a piece of energy or material, is not reinvested into a more production and actually just is not used so that's that the second and i'm giving you the third engine because of course to have productive and consumerism you need to have a government that is kind of facilitating that grand process of growth so there are different ways of of calling that some people have been calling it growthism and that is just very clear when you look at the mandate of different ministers i don't know it is for the us but now we, we have a new government in france And I've looked at the mandate, the legal mandates given to the Ministry of Economy. And it's written, it's written straight away, one of the first paragraphs, your duty is to promote economic growth. Actually, same thing in the UK, they voted a law in 2015, that is called the growth duty. Mm -hmm. and They're even more extreme, because they say that every single public servant should defend and promote the pursuit of economic growth. So if you get elected ministry of ecology in UK, you won't legally be able to just talk about degrowth because somehow the goal of degrowth runs against the pursuit of economic growth, which is a bit silly. So right now we just have governments that try to maximize GDP. That's what we have. And they organize the economy in order to do so. So in a post-growth economy, And even right now, if we want to be able to organize degrowth, we need somehow new indicators. My favorite one is the well-being budgets adopted by New Zealand in 2019. Yeah. So No more GDP, but a dashboard with 65 indicators of social and ecological well-being. If you have this dashboard, I believe that you can reduce production and consumption today. And see that your social and environmental indicators improve. So that tells you a different story of progress, where actually degrowth is not a recession, it's not a crisis, it's not your economy stopping and people suffering. It's actually the next step for a mature economy. In the mm-hmm. same way that when we grow in our twenties, at some point our body just <laughs> uh, saturates, stop to grow, but then we still develop intellectually. Same thing for an economy.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's well put. And and I was just going to comment on your. Your thoughts about the, what's the mandate of of governments and economy? I remember I knew what GDP was when I was six years old. You know, right, watching the nightly news because every month you'd see the report, and as, and I got as a six year old like, oh, GDP is the grade. I get my grades in school. GDP is the grade of you're doing well or you're doing mm. poorly. Poorly as an economy, so GDP gets t- gets gets um, GDP growth gets tied in with you know, uh, happiness of people in an economy of, of, you know, is the economy doing well or is it failing? And it, and of course, it's not a good measure of that. It's a, it's a blunt instrument that just takes in everything from, you know, and it doesn't take into account the externalities of pollution or that the health costs of smoking, you know, smoking, you know, selling cigarettes is positive for GDP, for example, but of course there's many negative impacts of that so and i and uh, and we're going to talk about that a little bit after this, but there's I would encourage people to read those five hundred academic papers, maybe write some themselves, and read a lot on this because i have come across across that dashboard uh, as as a way to wean your, wean ourselves off of the get ourselves mm-hmm. off of the GDP treadmill, and you're right, New Zealand is a great example. Are there other examples like that uh, that People should investigate.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, even in the US. So, the, the state of, of Vermont and Maryland have been, I think, since 2012. So, they've been measuring with the genuine progress indicator. Yeah, yeah. So, what that indicator does is it takes GDP, but then it subtracts all the stuff you don't want. So, the social cost and the environmental pollutions to give you, let's say, an adjusted. Some people sometimes call it like a green GDP. Mm -hmm. And so they're managing to show that sometimes GDP goes up, but actually GPI just remains flat. Or even you can have a situation where GDP goes up and GPI just goes down. That's what the ecological economist Armand Daly was calling an economic growth. Actually, that's economic growth that generates more cost than benefits. So you have this in the U.S., uh, You have similar dashboard indicators in Finland and Wales and Scotland and Iceland uh, that have formed, they call it a wellbeing economy alliance with New Zealand Mm -hmm. kind of putting their effort together to invent new indicators, because that's really the, that's the tough part of the issue that the first alternative to GDP was from 1972. So now they are like, around 40 of them it's there's a wealth of indicators and the data is just there so it's not a technical limit what we need is to collectively agree on using indicators so we can compare countries together so we can coordinate something like climate mitigation and that's also what we had to do for gdp i mean gdp was invented in the u.s in the 1930s and then it's only in 1953 that the united Nations came up with a bit of a universal standard and it's only after in the 50s and 60s that most countries started to use it and you know it's only after the fall of the soviet union which was one of the last country not to use gdp that we've had this kind of universal agreement to use one indicator of progress but now as i've said earlier we don't have that plenty of time
0: yeah and that's an interesting story. I forget the gentleman's name, but the guy who, the economist who Simon Kuznets, yes, who came up with GDP, warned that look, this can be misused, and it's it's not a a, a one number tells you everything kind of number. It's just one piece in the dashboard. That's not you know, I'm I'm using my word there, but that's the way he looked at it, and he thought of it thought it up in the 30s. Really, what didn't take off, you know, until about 20 years later. Uh, and it's interesting that we're here now. And didn't heed the warning that the guy who invented it actually, you know, tacked on to his creation.
1: Yeah, can I add something very quick? Because sure, sure. That discussion of indicators. This is really the the least controversial bit of degrowth. Everyone now agrees. Even every single economist you will see will tell you about the limits of GDP. Yeah. So every government government will have like, let's say, peripheral environmental account that will do some kind of reporting, that companies do more and more reporting to just show their carbon footprint and all of that, which is great. But we should not satisfy ourselves with a change of indicators because changing indicators is not changing the actual economy. But my favorite analogy is that, you know, we are in a car running full speed towards a cliff. And now we're realizing that we're running towards the cliff because we were only looking at the speedometer. And so we didn't really care what direction that car was going. And now people will say like, okay, cool. So now we need a dashboard of indicators. We're going to look at, you know, the, the pleasure we have in driving. We're going to look at where we want to end up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but brake first. First you brake, so we don't fall down the cliff. And then we chat about indicators. Yeah, so yeah. here we are here, like at that moment where indicators, important, question, especially to somehow operate that degrowth transition in the most efficient way possible and in a way uh, that preserves the most vulnerable people from being hit, because that's the usual thing that happens during a recession. And that's another very important difference between degrowth and recession. So degrowth is an intentional strategy. And you want to do this in a way that makes the worse off, better off after your transition. So it needs to be designed somehow. And, and that's, that's why I've decided to start with a number of quits you with. Like that degrowth needs to be selective. It's not just an all over the board. Yeah. It just needs to target high-income nations with the highest footprint, of course. And within these nations, we need to target people that are responsible for the bulk of environmental degradations. And this is not like a witch hunt. That happens at many things. Something very abstract. So, for example, now we are producing a lot of SUVs (laughs) in high-income nations. (laughs) We know we have a limited carbon budget, very limited. And now, like, as a human being, I tell myself that that remaining carbon budget we have, we should use it to build uh, pipelines and hospital in the global south, rather than just updating my normal car to a slightly bigger car in two years. So, in that sense, here it's not, it's not class warfare, even though class has a lot a lot of to do with it. But there are divisions everywhere: geographic inequalities, sectoral inequality, inequality between different companies that produce the same thing, but certain companies do it so much more than others. Uh, so we have to look for every single action we're having part of that thing we call the ecological transition. We every single time need to ask ourselves: is that effective? Is that actually reducing ecological footprint? That's first criteria. And second, is that not harming anyone that is already in a vulnerable position? Is that making it easier for countries in the global South to develop? Is that making it easier for the people that are unemployed today to find a job? Is that making it easier for people in a situation of poverty to escape it? So it needs to be designed, which is not you know, an insurmountable task. Anything is, but we're talking about the economy here. It's like a game. It's monopoly. We change the rules if you want to. It's not a problem. We're not talking about the laws of physics. Yeah. But it has to really be on the agenda when we're discussing these things. Otherwise, we tend to forget and come back to the kind of uh, the laziest assumption that, oh, we're just going to wait for people to invent technology that's going to solve these problems. But these problems are not technical. That they're fundamentally political.
0: That's a great way to end before we give people homework, but now, now's the part where we've talked, <laughs> we've talked for 45 minutes now. And we mentioned a number of things you've mostly mentioned, a number of things, a number of uh, resources, people can use folks, people can look up and read what they've written. Those 500 reports on uh, green growth. I've only read a couple of them. I'll, or, uh, degrowth. I keep saying green growth, degrowth. <laughs> can, uh, can
1: I recommend one?
0: Well, I was going to say uh, uh, now, okay. now, now, it, now it's your, it's your turn to uh, give our listeners homework. And it doesn't have to be one. It can be more than one. Okay. What should should they be reading? What are you reading? What should they be listening to, watching, just to educate themselves on degrowth.
1: Okay. So there's one article out of the 500 that is doing a synthesis of the literature. So it was published in 2018 and it's called Research on Degrowth.
0: Okay, it's easy enough.
1: 15 pages, you get yourself a nice little overview of uh, that research. And now a book will be published next week, which I've read, which is called The Future is Degrowth. It will be published at Verso by Matthias Schmelzer, and Vetter, and our own Van St. John. And it's by far the best book on degrowth I've read, and I've read them all. So you get, for people that are still hungry and that won't satisfy themselves with a 15 pager, here you have a full book that is integrating more than 60 concepts together into neat toolbox like list of actions, proposals, critiques, histories, controversies you get everything. so I would recommend that book and other ones and another one I really like is uh, Less Is More by Jason Hickel, uh, which I, I think it, it has this um this best seller field. So if, if you're more into like storytelling and you don't want to read something very academic, get books like Prosperity Without Growth by Tim Jackson or his latest one, Post Growth. You get, yeah, J- Jason Hickel, Less is More is a great way to get there. Yorgos Callas, a professor at the University of Barcelona, has published uh, a few books, including Degrowth in 2018, if I remember well. More recent one, 2020, The Case for degrowth so remember that name the case for degrowth is actually the shortest book so if you're looking into po- for parsimony and efficiency and you want to read one book to give you an overview of degrowth written by the world experts read the case for degrowth 2020 and for those of you that do that and still want to do more you can go on my website timothyperry.com where i do something very nerdy i build list of many different things all the books published on degrowth all the podcast on the topic i've got a full list of these 500 articles if you're really interested by that
0: so um
1: yeah i encourage you to to go and if you've done that and you're still looking for stuff just send me an email and i'll recommend stuff just for you
0: yeah no, I, I i read jason Hickel's book less is more that it's it's great i recommend it uh, i read tim jackson's uh, post growth i haven't gotten to georgio's uh, book i know it's short so i was kind of saving that i was doing the harder work first and then I'll dive in my, into those, some of those, probably not all of them, those 500 papers. But I would just recommend, I mean, my journey is just, I've just gone on a Google search and mm. that's how I came across you. Uh, and a friend of mine recommended you, but just educate yourself. And the list that Tim gave you is a great starting place. Can, can, Go, can
1: I add one more? I'm sorry, have, I'm unbearable. You,
0: but You can add one more.
1: <laughs> because now there's something extremely interesting happening in France. Young graduates are deserting from their jobs. It's a bit like the lying flat movement in China and what you've been calling the, the great, the mission in the US. So they, they don't wanna work for companies that are destroying the earth. And they realize that somehow the materialist, consumerist lifestyle is not just making them happy. And so that's another very powerful entry point. And for that, I'm, I'm thinking of a book by British philosopher Kate Supper that is called Post-Growth Living. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's talking exactly the same thing, but from the experience of how it feels to live in a materialist consumerist economy and basically asking yourself the, the most fundamental question of all, is, you know, buying, producing more and consuming more from one year to the other making you happy? Because if not, we might well do something else.
0: Yeah. No, those, that's a great place to end. I can't add anything more. Tim, thanks a lot.
1: That was fun. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope we educate a lot of people and uh, I hope to be talking to you a lot more in the future. Great. Take care.
1: Bye. Bye.